Oh, my God. 
minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. Hard to believe it's already Erev Tishabov on this 26th of July and day number eight in the month of Menachemav. Already the eighth of the nine days. Very hard to believe how quickly time goes. Uh, it's Erev Tishabov. The fast begins tonight. And uh, we read Eicha tonight. Kinnis tomorrow morning. We will have a broadcast of Kinnis live starting at 7.30 tomorrow morning here at uh, JM in the AM. And uh, the fast, of course, ends tomorrow night. And uh, then we move on to Erev Shabbos Nachamu as this calendar just keeps on motoring on, keeps on moving pretty quickly. Um... JM and the AM on this, what is today? Wednesday, <laughs> Wednesday, didn't I say that already? Wednesday morning broadcast hour of Tisha Bav and Ribera Wine is the centerpiece of our spoken word format with his brilliant lectures. So today's lecture is on uh, Sarah Schneer, uh, the, from the, um, from the series entitled Women of Importance in Jewish History. Here it is in its entirety, and uh, good morning from JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns itself with uh, Sora Schneerer, uh, one of the most uh, influential women, we could say, certainly in the modern era, but uh, in the long run of Jewish history, certainly one of the most influential women. And uh, we need a backdrop for this uh, because nothing appears out of thin air. One of the advantages of history is that it allows us to look back at things and see it in a perspective that uh, when you look at it, when it's happening, it's often hard to tell what is happening. One of the remarkable things is that God has, so to speak, his messengers in the world. And they are not always the people that we would think they would be. We would not choose them. I think that it's fair to say that Sarah Schneer is unusual. She's not the prototype that we would choose uh, as the role model uh, for Jewish women uh, according to current politically correct standards. So that's what makes this uh, very interesting. And uh, part of the problem is that she's a legendary figure. And she has been uh, hallowed uh, by uh, the uh, Beis Yaakov movement and by the religious world of Jewry so that uh, we have created 
uh, a legendary figure, and the legendary figure is not always the accurate description of the person himself or herself. So she's born in Krakow, in uh, Galicia, in Poland, in 1883. Now, uh, Jewish Europe, especially Poland and Lithuania, at the end of the 19th century, from let us say 1860 onwards, underwent a dramatic change. Uh, it became secularized. You know, all the stories about the, that the Jewish people got lost in the United States or got lost in Israel, etc., but that in Europe everything was perfect, that's all fiction. Uh, the secularization of the Jewish people took place in Eastern Europe with great rabbis and great rabbis and great Russia yeshiva with a wealth of Torah but the masses became secularized and they became secularized for many different reasons first of all there was a zeitgeist there was a spirit of the time the spirit of the time in Europe generally was one of tremendous change of uh, the abandonment of religion, of the weakening of the church. You know, we all know uh, there's uh, a famous statement, and the way it is in the non-Jewish world, that's the way the Jewish world reacts as well. So in a society like the Middle Ages, where the church was dominant, and everyone, at least on the outside, was a religious Christian, so Jews were, at least on the outside, they were religious Jews, because there was no, no other definition, so to speak, of a human being at that time. But by the 19th century, that was not true. The Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, all of these things combined uh, to create a society that basically was becoming irreligious. And uh, our society, the European society today, is the end result of that, where uh, the vast majority of people in Europe today uh, do not go to church, uh, do not uh, see religion as being an important part in their lives. I remember I was in, uh, a month ago, I was in a small town in Italy, one of those picturesque medieval towns that has more churches than people. And Sunday morning, nobody was going to church which uh, when you see it, for, and this is Italy, this is the Papal States, this is uh, where the country is uh, nominally 95% Catholic. So you had this zeitgeist of not being religious. That was one thing. Second thing was you had this terrible anti-Semitism, both in Poland and in Russia. And Russia controlled parts of Poland then. And... Uh, uh, Jews, uh, so to speak, uh, couldn't take it anymore. 
And so they searched for a way out. One of the ways out was to pick up and leave, which two and a half million Jews from Eastern Europe did before the First World War, most of them coming to North America, to the United States. And some went to South Africa, some went to South America, some went here to the land of Israel. A very small number. But they picked up and left. And that was especially true of the young, because the young had nothing to lose. People that were already older or better established always find it hard to move. And the third factor that was involved was the rise of the left, that all of a sudden there came new ideas into uh, society. Uh, Marx and the Communist Manifesto in 1848, uh, there were revolutions all over Europe, socialism, communism, anarchism, and this uh, was all predicated on the fact that religion was bad. Marx said it was the opiate of the people, poisoned them. And you add this uh, as a, it remained a very, and the left remains very popular till today, because the left promises utopia. Everything's going to be fine. If you only vote merits, it'll all be wonderful. They have the solution. They'll make peace. There'll be social equality. And these are all appealing, attractive ideas. The only thing is that uh, whenever the lift got in, it didn't work. But the ideas are certainly more attractive than what anyone else is offering. And uh, part of the idea, the, the, the left, so to speak, substituted religion for this social welfare democratic progressivism. That became the religion. To a great extent, that's the religion of a substantial part of American Jewry today. Tikkun olam. We're going to fix the world. Well, how can you be against that? So all of that combined uh, to create a uh, very, very volatile situation in Jewish Europe in the 19th century. And hundreds of thousands of Jews, mainly the young people, uh, deserted the ranks of Jewish observance and even of the Jewish people. In the 19th century, in Central Europe, Germany, Austria, 250,000 Jews converted to Christianity. They didn't do it because they believed in Christianity. They did it because they wanted to get ahead in the world. If you want to be a judge, you want to have an important job, you want to you want to be the conductor of the Viennese Philharmonic, you can't do it if you're Jewish. So Gustav Mahler became Christian. And he became the director of the Viennese Philharmonic. And uh, so uh, in Eastern Europe, the Jewish world is falling apart. Now, we hear all the fantasy stories 
about how great it was, you know, you know, everybody loved being poor, you know, but they were all, they were all poor, but they were happy. But uh, most poor people are not happy. And the Torah preaches against poverty, not for it. And the Jews, uh, because of the anti-Semitism in Russia, uh, became very prominent in the revolutionary movements that were going to topple the Tsar. So they were overrepresented in the communist movement and in the socialist movement and amongst the anarchists. And the ideas of the Enlightenment swept throughout the Jewish world. They were in the yeshivot. I mean, Valozhin produced great Talmidei Chachomim, great scholars, Torah scholars, Rashi Yeshiva, Rabbonim was the greatest. It also produced great communists, great secular Zionists. They all came from the same, from the same turmoil. So that's part of this background. The second part of the background is the changing role of women. Uh, throughout the, the Middle Ages and uh, even the early modern period, women were little more than chattels. They belonged to the husband or they belonged to their father. And uh, they were illiterate. Uh, they held only the most menial jobs. And you have to imagine, you know, it's hard for us to imagine, but a world without running water. So you got to go to the well every morning to get water. So who went to the well to get water? The woman. And then you have to bake or cook. So you need fire. Fire needs wood. Who gets the wood? How do you get the wood? So the woman had to go out and collect the wood. And she has to take care of the children. She had, it was an awful time to be a woman. We uh, don't realize what technology has done. You know, uh, if God forbid your washing machine breaks, you know, your dishwasher, your refrigerator, so that's the end of the world. I remember yet my mother... A blessed memory, we had an ice box. We didn't have a refrigerator. And we had a guy schlep up a 50-pound chunk of ice once a week and put it in the ice box. So there was no such thing as, uh, you know, a cold drink. Now, uh, women were illiterate. Most of our ancestors in Eastern Europe, the women, could not read or write. They uh, knew Judaism as a societal religion. I mean, they learned it from what their friends, and they learned it from their mothers. They knew the basic laws that dealt with them, but uh, they were illiterate. There were exceptions. So you had famous uh, rabbinical wives and daughters Usually they were uh, born into a family that had no sons. 
So therefore, in the absence of, of having a brother or a son to be educated, the father educated the daughter. So there are great legends about Rashi's daughters and other uh, throughout Jewish history. But uh, 99% were illiterate, could not read or write. And in a rapidly changing world, technology was coming into being then. Uh, So uh, you could not expect that women would be satisfied to be illiterate. And then there was one other factor, and that is that in the late 19th century, in Poland and in Lithuania, not so much in Russia itself, but certainly in Poland, the government required uh, elementary education. So how did that work? Uh, I'll read it to you in a few minutes, but how did that work? Uh, The Jewish system of education was that a young man studied in the cheder till he was 10 years old and then if he showed promise so then he was passed on to the rabbi of the town and the rabbi would learn with him it was part of the job description of the rabbi but if he didn't show exceptional promise so he went to work life was short there were no ideas of child labor laws so he went to work if the child studied with the rabbi and the rabbi felt that he showed exceptional promise so then the robe of the smaller community sent him on to a bigger community to a greater rabbi and this was the system until Valozhin opened as a yeshiva so then became more institutionalized and by the 1870s there were other yeshivas there was Slabotka, there were other Mir there were other yeshivas already that were institutionalized but they were very small in number the entire Lithuanian Jewish community all the yeshivas together before the war if I'm talking before the second world war was about 3,500 students which is less than the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem alone today. We have never had the numbers that we have today. I'm not talking about quality, but in terms of quantity. You know, Lakewood has thousands, Yeshiva University, you know, where do you have these numbers? But what happened to the girls? So the girls were still raised as being illiterate. Now the Polish government said, we will not tolerate that. So the girls went to the Polish public school system. And the Polish public school system was geared uh, to make the Jewish girls less Jewish. It was so much so, I remember um, uh, one of my rabbeim told me that in his city, the religious Jews sent their children, sent their girls to the Catholic school. Because in the Catholic school, at least, they would not uh, speak against religion. So they were less afraid of the influence of the nuns 
to make their daughters Catholic, then they were afraid of the influence in the public school of what would be. This is the world that she is born into. So I mentioned she's born in 1883 in Krakow. Her father was a Belzer Chosset. She comes from very distinguished lineage, traced back to uh, the Shach and to the Bach and to the other great, great Talmud Chachomim of the 17th century in Poland. And her father sends her to public school. Now, again, in the politically correct biographies, uh, this does not appear. You know, we have such a... It's, it's a little so warped. I, I, know, I know a great Rosh Yeshiva, and the, he, he spoke in Lakewood. I think three years ago or four years ago, and he mentioned offhand that he went to public school. And afterwards, he was uh, roundly told, don't ever say that again. And I thought just the opposite. Look, he went to public school and he's a great Rosh Hashiva. But in the backwards mind of it, if a Rosh Hashiva went to public school, how could he be a Rosh Hashiva? So she went to public school. She went for eight years to public school, to Polish public school. And she was mocked by her Jewish contemporaries. They called her, it's an interesting play on words, uh, they called her the Kleine Hasida, the small Chassid, but Hasida also means a stork, because she had a prominent nose. And we all know how kind children can be to each other. And uh, she uh, has a wonderful mind. She's an outstanding student. Now, she wrote a diary of herself, which, uh, again, is not very popular. And it's not very politically correct. So she writes that uh, uh, since she was uh, the daughter of this Belzer Chassid, so her father, uh, on Shabbos, because during the week she went to school, so on Shabbos he would tell her orally the Parsha, or the Torah reading, and also the prophets. And he eventually gave her a Yiddish translation, because they weren't allowed to teach the, uh, the Torah itself, so he gave her a Yiddish translation. There was a book called Senarena. You know, other books in Yiddish. It was a famous translation of the Torah into Yiddish later. And she would stay up at night and study the weekly portion of the Torah and the prophets. Now I'm quoting her diary. I enjoyed it tremendously as it enabled me to understand the roots of the Jewish heritage and the beauty and depth of thought and holiness. But I also took a great interest in secular knowledge, in education, history, and literature. I especially admired 
classical works of Polish and German writers. I had, I loved reading them. So this is where she's coming from. She's not coming from, uh, you know, uh, she's not coming from Beis Yaakov. <laughs> Which is one of the ironies, right? That, that's why I mentioned the Lord has his, has his people. When uh, she finishes elementary school, uh, she wants to continue to go to high school and then to attend the university. But the family is so poor. So elementary school apparently was government-sponsored. But past a, a certain level, you had to pay for it, and she could not pay for it. The family did not have the money. So she went to work, and she became a seamstress, which was a, a typical Jewish uh, woman's trade. Uh, even uh, as late as 50 years ago. And uh, she uh, noticed, she, as she writes in her diary, she said, I noticed that my customers, the women who come in, are so particular about their clothing. And they want every stitch this way or that way. And they're very hard to satisfy. He said, she said, but I notice that they have no concern about their spiritual self, about their true clothing. That was her expression. They're only interest, interested in the outside dress. They're not interested in the inside soul. So she's a very sensitive person. But uh, she becomes self-educated. She teaches herself Hebrew, and she teaches herself how to study uh, Torah, the Chumash, and to study the Aftorot, the words of the prophets every week that we read, and she draws great inspiration from that, but she has no one to teach her, because no one is going to teach a woman at that time, in that place, um, you know, if, uh, being a Belzer Chosid, it just isn't going to happen. Then a great change happens. First World War breaks out, 1914. Now, the First World War was a uh, terrible debacle on all sides. It affected everyone, and it destroyed Europe till today. Europe is still suffering from the First World War. A lot of what goes on today is simply the First World War still happening. You cannot understand Russia without the First World War, and you really can't understand England and France and Germany without knowing the First World War. Now, Krakow was under the Austro-Galician-Hungarian rule. Austria, together with Germany are fighting the war on the Eastern Front against Russia. Germany is fighting the war on the Western Front against France and England. Eventually, uh, 20 million people are going to get killed in this thing. You can go visit places in France and Belgium today where you can still see the trenches. 
100 years afterwards. The Jews were subject to terrible, terrible deprivations from both the Austrian army and the Russian army. Mostly from the Russian army. Whenever the Russians came to a Jewish village, it was a pogrom. The Austrians were more civilized. So what happened was that the Jews, especially in Galicia and Krakow and this there, Tarnopol, etc., they fled. And because they were part of the Austrian Empire, they came to Vienna. Which uh, was a culture shock for the Viennese and for the Jews. But yet many Hasidic rebellion that established their courts in Vienna in the First World War. And you had tremendous anti-Semitism in Vienna. Uh, Austria till today, Austria was the worst. Most of the leading Nazis were Austrians. So she and her family flee to Vienna. In Vienna, there is a uh, rabbi, Jew, by the name of Rabbi Dr. Moshe Flesch. He is a disciple of Samson Raphael Hirsch in Frankfurt. He's a doctor, he's a PhD. He is the typical... uh, Hershian disciple, student, follower, etc. And then it was called neo-orthodoxy, meaning the new orthodox, which meant that you you had a rabbi that uh, spoke German and that had a secular education, and it was strictly observant. And it was a Talmud Chochem. But in the eyes of the Hasidic rebellion and in the eyes of the Eastern European Jews, it uh, made no sense. It, uh, they uh, recognized Hirsch as someone that had done a great deal for German Jewry, but in the words that Rabbi Saul Salanter told him, he said, that's for Germany, it's not for us. And that's a refrain that exists over and over again. It's good for America, but it's not for us. You know, it's good for Rechavia, but it's not for Gula. It's good for Gula, but it's not for Mayor Shorter. That's, that tendency is uh, very common. She somehow, he has a synagogue, he, he lectures in German at a synagogue in Vienna and she is drawn to his lectures and he has a great influence upon her so she now has Hirsch uh, influence so to speak uh, and he portrayed for her in one of she writes about it he portrayed for her in one of his lectures how uh, the uh, legendary heroine of Hanukkah, Yehudit, who killed the Greek general, saved the Jewish people. And he made a whole lecture how one woman can save the Jewish people. And she was inspired by that lecture. She writes, she went home that night and she said, I'm the woman. 
And uh, when she returns to Krakow in 1917, she has this idea of Jewish education for women. Now, she writes as follows. She wrote under a pen name. Her pen name was Caroline. We have Toby Willig. She was Caroline. (laughs) And uh, she writes, uh, the high holidays are coming. I'm paraphrasing her. The high holidays are coming. It's amazing what she writes. She says the high holidays are coming. So the men, she writes, the fathers and the brothers go off to the Rebbe's. No, they go off to the Rebbe's. They go to Bell's. They go, they go for the whole period of time, right? They go to, she writes, they go to Bell's, they go to Gur, they go to Alexander, they go to Bubba. The women are left home. She says, our festivals are empty. They have no spirit. We don't know anything about it. We have no instructions. We are bereft of anything. I always remember her words. You know, people talk to me about Uman. Far be it for me to, you know, get into an argument over it, but I can't see it. If you can be in your Shalim, why should you be in Uman? And what about your wife and girls and family? What happens to their Rosh Hashanah? But uh, I digress. I don't mean that. (laughs) And then she says, if you go to the synagogue, she says the older women cannot pray. They can't read. So they sit there and cry. The younger women, the girls, look at them. She writes as though they're from a different planet. So the younger women, she, she describes it. They walk out of the synagogue, and she dramatically portrays they walk away, they walk away, they walk away from the synagogue. She doesn't only mean that they walk away from the synagogue, that they're going home. It means they had it, right? The synagogue doesn't speak to them. They have no connection to it. She has a bitter description of what the Mechitzas look like. And she therefore decides that she is going to open a school for a Jewish school for girls. But she wisely says, I'm going to start from the kindergarten because because the 14, 15-year-olds are gone already. I can't do it because that's the experience that she had uh, with the Jewish women uh, that were in Krakow at that time, that by the time they were teenagers, and uh, if, God forbid, you lose the women, you lost everybody. And if you have the women, eventually you'll have everybody. And then the Rabboni Shalom told the Tavraham, Kola Shertomar Elecho Sora Bekola. That's the key. Something that we unfortunately sometimes ignore. So in any event, she's going to make this elementary school. She starts in kindergarten, 
But first she needs rabbinic backing because she, she's going to have her head handed to her anyway because this is a revolution. By the way, uh, there are differences of opinion. Uh, uh, apparently she was married at a young age and divorced right away. And she married later and older when she was already older. She married a Rabbi Landau. She never had children. So uh, she has almost no personal life. The personal life is what she created. Uh, one of her uh, peculiarities was that she never allowed herself to be photographed. So someone once said to her, why not? You have such beautiful eyes. So she said, I don't have beautiful eyes, but I have a vision, which uh, summed up uh, probably to a great extent her personality and how she looked at life. So she starts, legend says, there are all sorts of legends, whether she had six girls, 25 girls, but whatever it is, it was a very small number. Within 10 years, she had thousands. Now, she had no uh, formal education in uh, being an administrator or being an educator, but she was able to put it together. She went to see the Belzer Rebbe, who lived in Mariambond in the Czech Republic today. And... uh, through her brother, she was able to get an audience with him. And she told him what she's going to do. And the Rebbe told her, Mazel Brocha, which was, you know, like, uh, you have my backing, you can do it. But he told her, he said, no one, none of the bells or chassidim are going to attend your school. Now that also is part of the... uh, mindset that exists within us is that it's okay for somebody else but you know I don't need it and the truth of the matter is that you do need it but he said go ahead and do it so when she uh, announces that she's going to take the second class and the third class and they're going to build it up etc so she has great rabbinic opposition great number of uh, people come out against her who is she and who needs it and it was good enough for my grandmother so it's good enough now uh, you uh, you know and there are, there are posters on the wall and all of the good things that go on in the Jewish world but there are two people that step into the breach one is the Chafetz Chaim Mayor Kagan. Now in Lita, there were girls' schools before Beis Yaakov, before Sarishnira. There was a girls' school in Tells. There was a girls' school in Ponevish. So in Lita, there was already the idea that somehow it was a necessity. And the Chafetz Chaim backed her. The Chafetz Chaim said that... Uh, it was, uh, he said, Atzav HaShaah was the order of the day. Couldn't do without it. The Ger Rebbe, the base Israel, so he also backed her. 
and he said in his famous uh, statement, other Rebbes criticized him. They said to him, how did you back her, right? And he said, you know, the father and the son come Friday night to my tish, and the daughter goes to the theater. He said, how do you think we're going to build the Jewish people that way? So, uh, and don't forget, Gier was the largest Hasidus in Poland, and it also was the most independent-minded. The advantage of the Hasidic Rebbeim is that they really don't have to care what others say. Because he's the Rebbe, it is, you know, he can do it. He doesn't care. An independence that other Rabbonim, unfortunately, do not have. So he backed her. Now, so if he backed her, so the Gerach Sidim started to send their daughters. So she had the imprimatur of Bells and of Ger and of the Chofetz Chaim. And that was enough to head off the opposition. Now the turning point occurred when uh, the Agudas Yisrael uh, was formed. Now she was not Zionistic at all. Uh, she in fact uh, wrote a long essay that the Jewish people can exist without any territory whatsoever but uh, she uh, nevertheless uh, sent many of her students to the land of Israel and they formed Beis schools here as well and uh, she uh, Appealed to the Aguda Shisoil. The Aguda was formed as the uh, non Zionist organization representing Eastern European Orthodoxy. The Mizrahi was the Zionist organization, the Aguda was the non Zionist organization. The Aguda, it's interesting, uh, adopted two things that have remained until today almost their property. One was they adopted Rameyer Shapiro's idea of the Dafayomi. And the winner of proposed the Dafayomi that all the Jews of the world should study one page of the Talmud every day and everybody would be studying the same page. Well, brilliant idea. That was backed officially by the Agudas Yisrael. And even though today it is far wider than Agudas Israel, it's universal in the Jewish world. It's never had the numbers and popularity that it has today. Mayor Shapiro would be uh, uh, amazed at how uh, the idea today is part and parcel of uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews. So the Agudas Israel sponsored that. And the second thing is they took over the Beis Yaakov. They provided financial backing. They provided teachers. And they provided the expansion so that uh, by the time she passed away in 1935, uh, there were over 30,000 students in the Beis Yaakov school system in uh, Poland which was the revolution 
which is what staunched the bleeding. It's what turned it around. Now, what would have been, uh, you know, uh, the Holocaust has uh, erased all of this. So we have no idea what would have been. But there's no question that the momentum had changed. And that uh, somehow, through the Bezhakov school system, uh, the uh, orthodoxy in Poland was now rebounding. It was going to stand on its feet. It was going to answer. Now, in her system, the girls received an excellent education. Now, part of the problem is, what's the curriculum? So there were many that said, well, you can't teach Chumash to girls. You have to teach them stories. She said, no, we're going to teach Hebrew, we're going to teach text, we're going to teach uh, the prophets and the Deem, we're going to teach history, and they taught Polish, and they taught literature, they they gave them a full, well-rounded education uh, that uh, was able to compete. Now, you didn't have to send your daughter to a Polish public school, even though the... uh, Statistics show that in 1936, 70% of all Jewish children went to Polish public school. But you didn't have to send them to Polish public school. You had, uh, certainly for the women, you had an alternative and an excellent alternative. And uh, I think that it's not an exaggeration to say today that uh, most Jewish women today receive a... uh, at least a more well-rounded education than the boys do. And it's a Frankenstein that we have created. I remember once uh, I was instrumental in trying to make a shidduch, and I told the young man, you know, take this girl out. And he, he took her out, and I said to him the next day, you know, what happened? He said, she told me a ramban. <laughs> which he admitted he did not know. So that can be daunting, right? Because the male ego is very fragile. But uh, part of the idea of Beis Yaakov, and she created Beis Yaakov teachers' seminaries, not just uh, schools, but to train teachers so that there would be teachers for the schools. All of this is a uh, seamstress. Uh, she did not live long. She only lived till 52. Uh, and she retired uh, two years before her death. It's interesting that since then, the Bezhakov system, till the Second World War, was run by rabbis, by men and not by a woman. However, in our time, as we see uh, the women's seminaries here in Israel and throughout the Jewish world, many of them, if not most of them, are headed by women. And uh, the development of the realization that uh, such institutions are not luxuries but are necessities, I mean, that was the revolution that she brought about. That is what she created. And I mentioned she created at the sacrifice of her personal life. 
Yet she had nothing else but uh, but that. And uh, it was one of the things that she said is I will not be remembered when she explained that she didn't allow photographs. She said I will not be remembered for my pictures and my appearance, but I will be remembered for my vision for what I for what I attempted to accomplish. So unusual person, very unusual person. The uh, situation. Uh, has developed that uh, she is a legend. Now, a legend, as I mentioned at the beginning of this brilliant lecture, is uh, subject to current political correctness. So she is portrayed many times in a different light. Uh, There are things about her that are omitted and things about her that are added. But uh, I think, I hope that this is a fairly accurate assessment of her life and of her accomplishment and of the fact that all of us in the Jewish world are beneficiaries of her efforts and of her vision. J.M. in the A.M. with Harry Barrel Wine, the uh, lecture on uh, Sarah Schneerer. Um, played it to its conclusion, as you heard, and uh, information about his lectures, one 800 499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. We'll do the first couple of minutes of uh, the lecture about Nechama Leibowitz and then um, present it uh, in its entirety in hour number two of our broadcast uh, this morning here at JM in the AM. Reminder that uh, tomorrow morning we are here with a live Kinnis presentation with Ray Goldwasser beginning at 7.30 tomorrow morning. And um, we'll give you the information about the virtual Isaiah Wall Mincha and uh, speeches, the Mincha Tishabov service and speeches. We'll give you all that info later on. And, of course, this coming Sunday, we're up at Camp Hask. That'll be Monday's JM in the AM, the broadcast up at Camp Hask on Hask Experience Day, uh, plus Joey Newcomb and Baruch Levine live in concert for those of you who will be in Parksville, New York this coming Sunday, so a very exciting day coming up Sunday. Believe it or not, it's uh, almost Shabbos Nachamu. We haven't even started Tisha B'Av yet, and it's almost Shabbos Nachamu. Rabbi Beryl Wine here at JM in the AM. More coming up here at JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns itself about a very extraordinary woman, a woman who we could literally say has been the teacher of hundreds of thousands of Jews, and not through any institution I spoke last week about Sora Schneerer, who established schools and school systems and is also responsible for generations of uh, educated and loyal Torah women. But here we're talking about an individual person that really had no platform. She never had an institution. She was a professor in... uh, Tel Aviv University, the Hebe University, but that's not necessarily a platform. And uh, who through the sheer force of her uh, intellect and inspiration uh, became uh, the Bible teacher, if I could use those words, uh, for her generation and for generations since.
So uh, tonight's uh, brilliant lecture is going to be divided into uh, three parts. One concerns her own personal life, which is not too dramatic. I'd like to say at the outset that there were uh, many people who called me and gave me anecdotes about her, personal experiences that they had. And I appreciate all of those calls and all of the knowledge that it was given to me, but I'm not going to use any of it tonight. Uh, because uh, I, I want to focus on a different aspect, which I think is very important and hardly appreciated. So one is about a personal life. Uh, second is about their influence as a teacher. And thirdly, uh, examples of her teaching uh, that show a pattern as how she looked at the holy texts and really set thereby a standard for which many, many others have followed and is extremely popular today in the Jewish world, something that did not exist uh, a century ago. So uh, those are the three parts of the lecture, and uh, we'll wake you up when it's over. <laughs> Muhammad Leibowitz was born in Riga in Latvia, uh, 1904. The Lithuanian Jewry was heavily influenced by German Jewry. They were in close proximity to each other. The Prussian border was not far away. And therefore, ideas which existed in Germany, uh, such as Hirsch, such as Hildesheimer, uh, a, a different uh, outlook on uh, the relationship of Jews, orthodoxy, to uh, the general society, also permeated Lithuanian and Latvian Jewry. And uh, she, uh, uh, born into a house of uh, intellect, Torah intellect. Now there were two children in the house, she and her brother. Her brother, Yeshaya Leibovitz, uh, became a well-known philosopher, a professor here in Israel, and an extremely controversial person. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a character. For instance, he was awarded the Israel Prize and he refused it. And he had it, uh, he had bitter words to say about the state of Israel and about the Israeli Defense Forces. But he was a very brilliant person, a great scholar a philosopher, an observant Jew, but a very different person. His sister, Nechama, so uh, she's raised, as I mentioned, in this uh, intellectual Latvian Jewish home, and she experiences the First World War 
under German. JM in the AM, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSiegel.com and the NahumSiegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Golly, it's on the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up. Hopefully, things have calmed down a bit in Israel. Hey, <laughs> uh. A prediction I wouldn't want to make, frankly, but uh, I'm hoping. Tomorrow is Tisha B'Av. We're here starting at uh, 6 a.m. at uh, 7.30. or by Goldwasser will join me for the Kinnis service live on the air. If you're not able to make it to Shul tomorrow, tune in to us. Get a taste of a uh, dignified Tisha B'Av service. The Isaiah Wall is usually the place where Mincha and then, uh, uh, then some speakers are... Um, Featured, but since COVID, it's been a uh, virtual service and speakers. You could email me for all the Zoom meeting ID information, nachum at nachumsegel.com. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next. Boker Tov from JMN. Galitzal, Mirushalayim, Ashaashtayim. Shalom Rav, Baulpan, Amit Kalderon, Imashakorea, Shav. חשד לניסיון חיסול ברמלה. גבר שזהותו טרם ידועה נפצע באורח אנוש מפיצוץ רכב. הוא פונה לבית החולים שמיר, אסף הרופא, והובהל לחדר הטראומה. כתבתנו הדס שטייף מוסרת שבמשטרה נבדק החשד כי הונח ברכב מטען במסגרת סכסוך בין עבריינים. פרסום ראשון. תלונה הוגשה למחש כבר בשבוע שעבר נגד מפקד יסם תל אביב, יאיר חנונה, שתועד בהפגנה בשני בערב מכה נער בן 18. מדווחת כתבתנו בתל אביב, אנה פינס. מפגין נגד החקיקה המשפטית הגיש תלונה למחלקה לחקירות שוטרים לפני כשבועיים נגד חנונה, בטענה ששבר לו את האף במהלך מעצר. בתלונה כתב המפגין, הקצין חנונה הטיח אותי ברצפה, הניח את ברכו על צווארי עד שהתקשיתי לנשום, והוסיף, בעוד שאני שותת דם, השוטר איים עליי וקילל. במהלך היום צפוי מפגין נוסף להגיש תלונה נגד חנונה, לאחר שהוא תועד מכה אותו בהפגנה בנתיבי איילון ביום שני. חילופי אש בשכם, כוחות צהל עצרו לפני שעה קלה מבוקש במחנה הפליטים אל עין, מחבל פלסטיני נהרג. מדווח כתבנו הצבאי, דורון קדוש. לוחמי דובדבן וגדוד שקד פשטו לאור יום על מחנה הפליטים אל עין בשכם ועצרו את המבוקש נור בסיוני בחשד שהוא מעורב בפעילות טרור. במהלך יציאת הכוחות מהמחנה, מחבל פלסטיני ירה לעברם והלוחמים השיבו אש והרגו אותו. אין נפגעים ישראלים. רק בשבוע האחרון בגזרת שכם, שלושה פיגועים ושישה מחבלים הרוגים מאש צהל. ראש הרשות הפלסטינית אבו מאזן נועד היום באנקרה בירת טורקיה עם ראש הלשכה המדינית של חמאס אסמאעיל הניה. בכיר חמאס שנכח בפגישה אמר כי השניים שוחחו באופן עמוק וכן. היום יבעד אבו מאזן עם מנהיג טורקיה ארדואן. כתבנו לענייני ערבים ג'קי חוגי מוסר שהמפגש בין השניים מגיע ברקע המתיחות בין הרשות לבין הפלגים בעקבות סדרת מעצרים של חמושים שביצעה הרשות בשבועיים האחרונים בג'נין וסביבתה. כתב אישום יוגש בימים הקרובים נגד ארבעת החשודים ברצח העבריין ליאור גרינברג לפני כשלושה חודשים. על פי האישום, שניים מהחשודים הגיעו רעולי פנים, ירו לעבר גרינברג ונמלטו על קטנוע. מותו נקבע במקום. שניים נוספים חשודים בסיוע. מחקירת ימ"ר תל אביב עלה כי מדובר בהתנגשות במסגרת סכסוך בין ארגוני הפשיעה הפועלים במרכז. ומזג האוויר עומסי חום כבדים עד קיצוניים ברוב אזורי הארץ. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. Lecture concerns itself about a very extraordinary woman, a woman who we could literally say 
has been the teacher of hundreds of thousands of Jews, and not through any institution. We, I spoke last week about Sora Schneerer, who established schools and school systems, and is also responsible for generations of uh, educated and loyal Torah women. But here we're talking about an individual person that really had no platform. She never had an institution. She was a professor in uh, Tel Aviv University, Nehebi University, but that's not necessarily a platform. And uh, who through the sheer force of her uh, intellect and inspiration and became uh, the Bible teacher, if I could use those words, uh, for her generation and for generations since. So uh, tonight's uh, brilliant lecture is going to be divided into uh, three parts. One concerns her own personal life, which is not too dramatic. I'd like to say at the outset that there were uh, many people who called me and gave me anecdotes about her, personal experiences that they had. And I appreciate all of those calls and all of the knowledge that it was given to me, but I'm not going to use any of it tonight. <laughs> uh, because uh, I, I want to focus on a different aspect, which I think is very important and hardly appreciated. So one is about her personal life. Uh, second is about her influence as a teacher. And thirdly, uh, examples of her teaching uh, that show a pattern as how she looked at the holy texts and really set thereby a standard for which many, many others have followed and is extremely popular today in the Jewish world, something that did not exist uh, a century ago. So uh, those are the three parts of the lecture, and uh, we'll wake you up when it's over. Muhammad Leibowitz was born in Riga, in Latvia, uh, 1904. Lithuanian Jewry was heavily influenced by German Jewry. They were in close proximity to each other. The Prussian border was not far away. And therefore, ideas which existed in Germany uh, such as Hirsch, such as Hildesheimer, uh, a, a different uh, outlook on uh, the relationship of Jews, orthodoxy to uh, the general society, also permeated Lithuanian and Latvian Jewry. And uh, she uh, uh, born into a house of intellect, Torah intellect. Now there were two children in the house, she and her brother. 
Her brother, Yeshaya Leibovitz, uh, became a well-known philosopher, a professor here in Israel, and an extremely controversial person. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a character. For instance, he was awarded the Israel Prize and he refused it. And he had it, uh, he had bitter words to say about the state of Israel and about the Israeli Defense Forces. But he was a very brilliant person, a great scholar, a philosopher, an observant Jew, but a very different person. His sister, Nahama, so uh, she's raised, as I mentioned, in this uh, intellectual Latvian Jewish home. And she experiences the First World War under German occupation, mostly. Uh, the German army uh, occupied Latvia pretty much early on. And uh, till the surrender, till the armistice, uh, Germany dominated uh, Eastern Europe and that area. And therefore, uh, there is a certain uh, approach to uh, scholarship, etc. You know, it's one of the great ironies, tragic ironies in Jewish life, is that uh, Germany, uh, before Hitler, uh, was the inspiration for many Jews as to what a civilized country should be and what uh, a, an educational system should look like and how uh, the secular world and the religious world could mesh together. Uh, Germany was the example. And uh, therefore, some of the great rabbis of, uh, and great yeshiva students of Eastern Europe uh, ended up in Germany and went to university in Germany because of the fact that that was, so to speak, the ideal place. America was, first of all, very far away. And second of all, America is rough, coarse. If you have any doubts, uh, look at the, the election that's coming. It's a rough place. But Germany was gemütlichkeit, was nice and proper and manners. And that's really one of the great ironies of history. Because, uh, for instance, one would have expected God forbid that the Holocaust could occur. Uh, Russia had a history of pogroms. There were other, uh, Italy was involved in wars for a, th for a millennia. But uh, Germany was uh, Goethe and Schiller and Beethoven and uh, how, could, how could that happen there? And that's one of the things that she will talk about directly and indirectly, because everyone talks about their own life. There's no one that is, so to speak, immune. No one, we all are within our collective experience of what happened to us. So uh, in 1919, when the war ended, and uh, the world is a mess, Europe is a mess, her family moves from Latvia to Berlin. 
And when she comes to Berlin, she's a teenage girl, and both she and her brother begin their studies, and not only their religious studies, but their general studies as well. And she becomes fluent in a lot of languages. She has a very good mind. Somebody remarked before that she, to me, that uh, in many respects she really was a man. We used to have a school in Muncie, uh, so the wags used to say that if you send your daughter there, they'll make a man out of her. She knew her place, but she didn't know her place. And uh, she uh, studied in the university, and uh, she uh, studied for a PhD, and she had almost no personal life. She ends up marrying her uncle, Lippmann Leibovitz, who was uh, quite a bit older than she was. They never had any children, and uh, we really don't know much about him at all. But uh, early on, uh, she uh, was uh, enamored of the land of Israel. And as she writes, she was enamored of it because of her knowledge of Torah, because of biblical studies. Uh, she uh, wrote once, that Herzl did not make me a Zionist, Abraham did. And uh, that is a very telling uh, description of our attachment to the land. The, uh, the Jewish story does not begin in 1897, nor even in 1948, or 1967, or whenever you want it to begin. The Jewish story is begins with our father Abraham and our mother Sarah. And so in 1930, when she was awarded her PhD from the University in Berlin, uh, she moves immediately to the land of Israel. And uh, she starts to teach. Uh, originally she taught her neighbors. And she uh, started to get a reputation. Her reputation was word of mouth. Gemara says, Chavra to Chavra Isoy, a friend to a friend. That's exactly how the Nechama Leibovitz was built. People said, there's this wonderful woman that teaches Torah. You should come hear her. And therefore, uh, she traveled the length and breadth of the country in the 1930s and 1940s. She spoke in uh, very secular kibbutzim. She spoke in religious circles. She spoke to old, she spoke to young. She was a teacher, but she was a different type of teacher in her ability, uh, so to speak, to make the Torah alive that it wasn't a book. It was not studying Plato. And that was a Torah Chaim, a book of life, which is the key to understanding Torah. Uh, she uh, eventually, uh, uh, her students asked her, 
she would share her notes with them. Now, professors are very jealous of their notes because if you have your notes, if you have their notes, then you're the professor. So who needs the professor? But uh, she was very gracious. Started giving out her notes. And uh, part of her method of teaching was that she would submit a list of questions after uh, classes, uh, not, the, not as an exam, but questions that you would take home and give you food for thought. And she never said what the answers were. And these uh, notes, so originally they were uh, handwritten and then that became mimeographed. You all remember there were once mimeographed machines. My grandchildren can't believe that there ever were such things. I showed them once a uh, mimeographed uh, pamphlet that I had they couldn't believe that. You know, stencils, carbon paper, I mean, it was once a different world. And uh, so uh, these sheets gained notoriety. And after a while, she had printed pamphlets on every part of the week. And the pamphlets uh, every year for about the... Uh, 10 years, 12 years, there were new pamphlets every year. Eventually, these pamphlets were taken over by the Jewish Agency, the Torah Department of the Jewish Agency, and they distributed them. Now, that was a blessing, but it also had a liability to it because, you know, the Jewish world is very strange. You know, if something is published by the Jewish agency, then uh, the non-Zionist element in the Jewish people won't take the pamphlet in their house. They won't look at it, simply because of who published it. So therefore, even though the publication of her uh, lessons uh, through the Jewish agency gave it widespread uh, publicity and sent all over the world and now you had you know a, a decently printed piece of paper that people could uh, deal with it also to a certain extent narrowed the audience that otherwise she may have had but as I mentioned she had no platform she had no foundation for herself and uh, she had no financial support to be able to distribute any of this on her own. And because of all of that, therefore, uh, that's what happened. So th after uh, many years, the pamphlets were taken and put in solid book form. And there were two series of books. I have one of them here in front of me. And uh, it was called Iyunin, meaning... Uh, analyses of the parshas of the week. And she had always four, five, six subjects on every parsha that she discussed. And uh, that uh, 
was and is a great bestseller, quote unquote, uh, in the Jewish world and in the Torah world. But again, uh, I know many, many, maybe not too many, maybe one many is enough, uh, uh, rabbis, yeshiva students, uh, teachers in the yeshiva who surreptitiously use her but never would admit it. And uh, I've had people come and say, can I borrow you Nechama Leibovitz? Uh, so uh, that was what uh, was involved. And then uh, she became a very famous teacher in all sorts of institutions. She was willing to teach anywhere practically. And uh, she produced uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of loyal students. Now, here you have a woman as a teacher of Torah, an open teacher of Torah, and uh, that itself was revolutionary. But she set the example for so many other women that today are teachers of Torah, and today it's accepted. And uh, not only teachers of Torah to women, teachers of Torah, period. And, uh, but she never saw herself as a radical. And she never saw herself as a feminist. In fact, she opposed feminism. And she felt that it was not compatible to the Torah. It did not appear in the text, she says. We have to do what the Torah says. Nowhere does it say that. So uh, some of her uh, students became great feminists, but she never adopted that. That was not her. And uh, she was a very humble person and a great deal of humility. She never called herself anything but Nechama. And uh, she had a good sense of humor and a warm person a very, very nice person. Now, there are great scholars who are not necessarily such nice people. Sometimes it doesn't go together. And uh, sometimes the greater the scholar, the more impatient the person is with non-scholars. But that was not her at all. And uh, she was awarded the Israel Prize, which she did accept. And uh, she was very famous, and she lived a long life into her 90s. And uh, she left this indelible impression on the Jewish world, on Torah scholarship, and how to look at the Torah in order to be able to interpret it correctly. So as I said, her life uh, was not uh, dramatic. And even the anecdotes that were told about her are uh, simple ones about how nice she was, how charitable she was, uh, how kind she was. But uh, her power was not in her personality as much as it was in her scholarship and in her attitude towards the Torah. That brings us to the uh, second uh, part of the lecture here, which deals with 
this. Now, uh, the Torah was interpreted in the uh, Talmud, but the, the Talmud's interpretation of Torah was mainly legalistic and halachic, even though there is a fair share of moral teachings, certainly in the Talmud as well. But it's in the Middle Ages, beginning, let's say, in the 8th, 9th centuries, and carrying through till about the uh, 17th century, uh, that an enormous amount of commentary to the Torah was written. The uh, chief, the Ramban, says, first we have to talk about Rashi, Kilo Mishpat Abchora. He has, he's the firstborn. He's the, the one we have to consider first. Uh, Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's grandson, said, he said, you know, Rashi's commentary to the Talmud, he said, I could have written that too. But his commentary to the Bible, he said, nobody could have written. And it has remained until today, Chumash and Rashi. First, we have to see what Rashi says. And Rashi set the bar uh, for all the commentators to the Bible. Now, Rashi is a uh, blend of uh, translation, uh, understanding the text, uh, moral lessons, uh, agadic legends. All of that is blended into one seamless whole. Also a lot of Hebrew grammar. After Rashi, his own relatives, for instance, the Rashbam, so the Rashbam, Rabbeinu Shmuel ben Meir, who was Rashi's oldest grandson, said that I once had a discussion with my grandfather, and I said, you know, in the beginning of your commentary, you said that you were going to stick to the text, explain the text. But he said, but a great deal of your commentary is legend, stories, agada, and the Rajbam writes, my grandfather agreed that my point was well taken, and he said, you know, maybe if I had time, I would rewrite it. He never had time, he never rewrote it. There's no necessity to rewrite it. But we have always a question of the text. What does the word mean? Why did the Torah choose that word? And as the Gon of Vilna pointed out, uh, there is no synonym, there are no synonyms in the Hebrew language. In other words, there are words that are similar, but they're not exact. And if the Torah used that word, so that word is teaching us a lesson that if it would have used a similar word, would have been a different lesson. Now, in the modern era, from the time of the Enlightenment onwards, uh, so there was a reaction against religion. Um, Judaism and to a certain extent Christianity and even Islam is built upon the text of the Bible. And therefore, if you say that those religions, so to speak, are nonsense, 
they have no place. It's all made up. Then you have to disprove the text. And therefore there arose, in the, especially in the 19th century, the school of biblical criticism. Now, biblical criticism looked at the text and they said, well, uh, there are problems in the text, which we all agree to, and which Rashi comments and the Talmud comments, and the problems are what lead us to correct interpretations. In other words, uh, Moses, when he wrote it, knew that he's not writing the same thing twice, and that someone that looks at it will be able to say, what's going on here? The rabbis have the great example that right in the beginning of uh, the description of the creation of the world and of the creation of man, however humans came into being, so it says, as though the Lord is speaking to someone and he says, let us make human beings in our form. Who's he talking to? There's a Noah, is there another God? What, he has a, com- a committee? You know, the world says that uh, a camel is uh, a horse made by a committee. So who's he talking to? And the text says, das. So the Talmud raises the problem. So the Talmud says, well, why did he, so why does the Bible say not say, the Bible should say, yes, I will make. I mean, if every author has an editor, right? So let the editor straighten it out. So the Talmud says, because the Torah wants to teach us an important lesson, that great decisions should not be made hastily. J.M. in the A.M. with the uh, lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine about Nechama Leibowitz, and we will get to the conclusion of this lecture coming up here at J.M. in the A.M. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. This time tomorrow, those of you who cannot make it to shul, um, this time tomorrow, tune into J.M. in the A.M. when Rabbi Goldwasser and I will be leading the Kinnis service, a 40-minute Kinnis service live on the air. Um, and that's uh, tomorrow morning right here at JM in the AM. Rabbi David, the aforementioned Rabbi David Goldwasser, his words, Zechonishmas Harav Zebinavis of Alevi and Zechonishmas Esther Basavis of Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We learn in the Talmud Yerushalmi that there were several things that were decreed by the Chachamim, by the great sages, so that we should always remember the Chorban Beis Hamikdash. It should be a reminder that we continuously need to mourn and to miss the Beis Hamikdash. Our Aloha tells us that they were gozer. A person was not allowed to wear the special crown that was made for Chassanim, for the groom. That crown was made of various materials. In the later days, it was made out of an olive branch. So, because it says, Nafla Ateras Roshenu, the crown of our heads has fallen, speaking about the Beis Amikdash, the Talmud tells us 
Eluhein Ataros Chasonim. These were the special crowns that the Chasonim used to wear on the day of their wedding. What happened was that all the people would listen. However, there was one, Rebbe Yirmiya, that for whatever reason it was, he did not listen to the Gezeira. He didn't listen to this particular decree of the Chachamim, and he wore the crown. However, when Shmuel heard of this, he said it would have been better for him had he been beheaded and not done this, not worn the crown. And that's what it means. Kishkoga hayotza, like the mistake that went out, mipiashalit, from the mouth of the ruler. What it means is that sometimes the ruler could give a decree. He didn't mean to do it. It was a mistake. Belita saper. But once it came out, they had to follow it. And so too, when Shmuel said this, it was already like a mistake that came out from the mouth of the ruler. On that day, Rabbi Yirmiya died. The Medrash and Echa Rabbah tells us that from here, we can see the extent to which a person has to appreciate the loss of the Besamikdosh, even wearing the crown of branches on the happiest day of a person's life is not acceptable when there is a minig to remember the Besamikdosh. As we all know, that at every chuppah, they put a little bit of ash on the head of the chassan. At every chuppah, the chassan breaks a glass if I do not remember Yerushalayim at the time of my greatest joy. We understand that each and every day we remember the Beis HaMikdosh and we pray that speedily in our days may we see the arrival of Mashiach in the building of the third and final Beis HaMikdosh. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. That's Rabbi Goldwasser, of course. He'll join me tomorrow morning at this time with Kinnis live on the air at J.M. in the A.M. Let's do the conclusion of the um, uh, lecture about Nechama Leibowitz, and then we will continue with more at J.M. in the A.M. The word mean. Why did the Torah choose that word? And as the Gon of Vilna pointed out, uh, there is no synonym, there are no synonyms in the Hebrew language. In other words, there are words that are similar, but they're not exact. And if the Torah used that word, so that word is teaching us a lesson that if it would have used a similar word, it would have been a different lesson. Now, in the modern era, from the time of the Enlightenment onwards, uh, so there was a reaction against religion. Um, Judaism and to a certain extent Christianity and even Islam is built upon the text of the Bible. And therefore, if you say that those religions, so to speak, are nonsense, that they have no place, it's all made up, then you have to disprove the text. And therefore there arose, in the, especially in the 19th century, the school of biblical criticism. Now biblical criticism looked at the text 
And they said, well, there are problems in the text, which we all agree to, and which Rashi comments and the Talmud comments, and the problems are what lead us to correct interpretations. In other words, uh, Moses, when he wrote it, knew that he's not writing the same thing twice, and that someone that looks at it will be able to say, uh, what's going on here? The rabbis have the great example that right in the beginning of uh, the description of the creation of the world and of the creation of man, however humans came into being. So it says, as though the Lord is speaking to someone and he says, let us make human beings in our form. Who's he talking to? There's no, no, is there another God? What, he has a, com- a committee? You know, the world says that uh, a camel is uh, a horse made by a committee. So who's he talking to? And the text says, Das. So the Talmud raises the problem. So the Talmud says, well, why did he, so why does the Bible say Naseh? The Bible should say Eseh, I will make. I mean, if every author has an editor, right? So let the editor straighten it out. So the Talmud says, because the Torah wants to teach us an important lesson, that great decisions should not be made hastily, and without consultation. So God, so to speak, consults with his angels, however we'll understand that. And the fact that people will misinterpret it, so the rabbi said, what can we do, right? So let the fools come and misinterpret it, but we're not going to change anything simply because it's subject to misinterpretation. Now that's an enormous insight. That, so to speak, the Torah is aware of all of the contradictions and dissimilar descriptions of events. We're going to have it in this week's Parsha, where uh, the Ten Commandments that appear in this week's Parsha are not the Ten Commandments that appeared in Chumashmos. So which are they? So you want to tell me that Moshe is not aware that it's not the same? So because of these things, and that depends really on the approach to the Torah, but because of these things, so people said, well, uh, this part of the Torah was written by Mr. A, and this part of the Torah is written by Mr. B, and this part of the Torah is written 500 years later, and this part of the Torah is borrowed from Hammurabi, etc., etc., etc. And that was the school of biblical criticism. It was especially advanced in Germany by a man by the name of Wellenhausen and others. And there were many Jews that followed it. Now today, biblical criticism is pretty much out of uh, popularity because you can't get it on Twitter. You know, the world is, it's not an issue. 
However, for instance, in Hebrew University today, uh, the basic Bible courses are taught in the spirit of biblical criticism. The Jews are the only ones that are left with it. That is the world that she is coming into. So on one hand, you have uh, a tendency, I don't know how to put it nicely, but there's a tendency in Orthodox education not to ask hard questions. If you ask the question, then you're already a non-believer. So if you raise uh, textual problems, so then uh, somehow you're subject to uh, suspicion at least. And on the other hand, you have this uh, school of biblical criticism that uh, destroys any veracity or holiness or authority in the Torah itself. Those are the two extremes, and uh, to a great extent they still exist today. But they're developed, and this is really her mentor, in my opinion, and you all know I'm never wrong. The change in the entire view in how to view uh, Torah, Talmud, teaching, yeshivas, comes with the, with the Gon of Vilna, Rabbi Elijah of Vilna, who was the, uh, the greatest scholar in the Jewish world uh, that existed for centuries. He's a throwback uh, to uh, 500 years before his time. And the Gon concentrated on the text. What does the text say? Why was this word used? And he saw in every word all sorts of fantastic interpretations that became uh, a genre in commentary. And she, so to speak, is not only his student, but takes his methodology to its logical and brilliant conclusion. Now, in the mix, we, everything is complicated. In the mix are other things. There is, for instance, a Jew in Germany by the name of Moses Mendelssohn. And Mendelssohn is an Orthodox practicing Jew who uh, is a great philosopher who defends the Jewish people against uh, the polemics of Christianity and the Christian professors, but who is a product of the Enlightenment. And Mendelssohn, in one of his statements, says to one of his Christian critics, if you can prove to me that you're right, I will convert. Well, they never proved to him that they were right, but if you say that, that's enough, it's enough to get you into trouble. And uh, Mendelssohn had a uh, tragic family life. Four of his children did convert. He had no Jewish grandchildren. Mendelssohn, together with a man by the name of Naftali Hertz Wesley, wrote a commentary to the Torah. It's called the Bayor. Bayor means the explanation. And uh, it's a very original work. 
that is based on text. Mendelssohn's Bayer was uh, banned from uh, traditional study, either because it was Mendelssohn or because of the fact that it, so to speak, did not conform to traditional commentary and uh, took, uh, we could even say, liberties with the text. But it had great insights in it. And there arose a school of commentators that were not Bible critics, but nevertheless were not observant or even believing Jews. And we have a whole list of such people. Uh, there's a man, Benno Jacob, who was a uh, German, who wrote an enormous commentary to the first book of the Torah to Bracious, who has brilliant insights. But, uh, you know, uh, he didn't put on film, so who's going to read him? Why should I believe him? And there was an Italian professor by the name of Casuto. Uh, there was a mosque in Italy, Shadal, Shmuel David Luzzato. There's a whole genre of people who began to analyze the text. And in analyzing the text, they came up with commentaries that were not biblical criticism, but were not traditional. And so she, what she did is that she took and somehow made a blend of the traditional commentaries with these commentaries, and out of it came a whole picture. So, for instance, when you discuss Joseph and his brothers, so you get a picture of it, and you understand why the Torah said this, and it didn't say that. Now, we have an allusion to that, for instance, in Rashi and the Ramban. We have the famous uh, incident that Joseph is going to find his brothers, and he can't find them. He went to uh, Shechem, and they were not there. He, did, he didn't know where they were. So he turns around, and he didn't have ways. <laughs> and they, 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 uh, the uh, iPhones were not yet invented. So he doesn't know what to do. So he turns around, he's going to go home. Had he gone home, all of Jewish history has changed. All of civilized history has changed. But what happens? A man found him, saw him, and he sees that he's lost in the field. He's looking, doesn't know what to do. So he asks him, like, can I help you? From there, you know, he wasn't an Israeli. <laughs> can I help you? He said, well, I'm looking for my brothers. I'm looking for my brothers. You know, ten guys in black hats, did you see them around there? Do you have any doubt that they wore black hats? <laughs> so the man said, yeah, I saw ten guys and I overheard. They said they're going to Dotan. Thank you. He goes to Dotan. He goes to Dotan. Wow, there they're waiting for him. 
Shimon and Levi, and they throw him in the pit, and they go to Egypt, and boom. Who is this man? This man is the key man in history. He's the one that sets the whole thing in motion. So Rashi says that he was the angel Gabriel, the Malach Gabriel. So Rashi's of the opinion, based on Medrash and Talmud, that uh, angels show up in the form of human beings. They're doing God's work. So God wants it to turn out this way. So he sends them down. The Ramban says, the Moshe ben Nachman, who lives uh, 200 years after Rashi, Rashi's in France and he's in Spain, in Barcelona. The Ramban says, well, if Rashi said he's an angel, he's an angel, right? We're not going to argue with Rashi. But he said there's no necessity to say that. The Torah is coming here to teach us a lesson. God has many messengers. We are all his messengers. We just don't realize that we're doing something that God put us here to do. God created this man that he should find Yosef in the field and tell him his brothers went to Dothan. That's the lesson here. The lesson is that history has a hand to it. But the hand is not obvious. There are things that happen. She adopts this. I mean, you should see her uh, commentary to this story. But she adopts this as a basic value in Judaism, which is the third part of what I want to talk about, is that she has a pattern in how to look at things. And the pattern is that there are value systems in the Jewish world value systems in God's world and that everything that happens somehow has to fit into those categories of value systems and if it doesn't fit then it's not the Torah it's not what God wants and therefore she says the value system here is obvious that there are unknown people who do things and are unaware that they're doing things that are of any great importance. I'm reading a book on the Rothschilds. I've just finished it. Two volumes, it's about a thousand pages. It's got every deal that they ever made in it. They had a great competitor uh, that uh, one of the British banking houses. And uh, because the competitor basically uh, resented the fact that the Rothschilds were Jewish, which he was not alone. So he, uh, they, his firm said terrible things, did terrible things, etc., etc. One of the Rothschilds, I don't remember whether it was Lionel or Walter, said to him, you shouldn't start out with the Jews. You'll go down for it. And the man laughed at him. And this was a major firm in the First World War, in the Second World War, uh, until about uh, 15 years ago. And then there was one rogue trader. He was trading for the company. 
in Singapore and he bankrupted the company on one deal. So when I, uh, the first time I heard that, you know, I figured, you know, it's a rogue trader. But when I read the Rothschild book, I said to myself, well, it took, uh, took 80 years and 90 years, but he told them what was gonna happen. So that's an important value, that the world works with a system. And she emphasizes that over and over again in her teachings, that the Torah comes to teach us this value. So for instance, we read in the Torah that there were two midwives who didn't listen to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh said, kill all the Jewish boys. And there were two women, Shifra and Pua. So Rashi says, Shifra and Pua, is Miriam and Yecheved, Yecheved and Miriam. In other words, they were Jewish. And uh, that is the accepted interpretation that Shifra and Pua were Jewish. There is, however, a stream in the commentators to the Chumash that say that Shifra and Pua were not Jewish. They were Egyptians. And that's why they don't have Hebrew names. Shifra now became a Hebrew name, but it's basically an Egyptian name. Pua is certainly an Egyptian name. Rashi struggles to say what the names mean to give them a Hebrew meaning. Uh, Evan Ezra points out that uh, Moshe's name itself is an Egyptian name. And when the daughter of the Pharaoh said, Kimin Amayimishisihu, the Mishisiu is an Egyptian not a verb, not a Hebrew verb. So Shifra and Pua are not Jewish. So she says, said, and what, what is the Torah telling us? So here she makes a basic statement. She said the Torah is not based on archaeology. The Torah is not based on history. The Torah is not a narrative. The Torah is a book of moral behavior. It's a book of human psychology. It's a book that illustrates to us the choices that human beings have on a regular basis, day in and day out, to do right or wrong. So the Torah tells us that in the midst of Auschwitz, and they're throwing children in to be eaten by the crocodiles, and they're enslaving a people, there were two women that were not willing to cooperate. There were two Egyptian women that were not willing to say, what can I do? We are not going to listen to the Pharaoh. We're not going to kill anybody, even though it's at the risk of their own lives. They don't know that the Pharaoh is going to forget about them. So she says, that's what the Torah is coming to teach us here. That's why the Torah included that lesson. That's the whole point here. And just like the point, she says, that fits into the idea of the daughter of the Pharaoh saving the child, saving Moshe. Because she says, in the midst of evil, there still are good people. And the choice of everyone is whether or not the person wishes to be a good person or not to be a good person. So we can condemn a whole society, but in every society there are good people. And that's how God works, and that's what the Torah wants to teach us. She has the famous idea, which I have quoted her many times, 
that the city of, Z- of Zdom and Amora were destroyed, not because they had three million evil people. They were destroyed because they didn't have ten good people. They would have had Avraham Avinu, she says, why does the Torah tell us that he bargains with God? Who needs all of that? The, the Torah is very sparse on words. So here you got a whole story, maybe 50, okay, maybe 45, okay, 40, 30, 20, 10. Why does the Torah do that? Why does the text? Because the Torah wants to tell us that if there would have been 10 good people, then the whole thing never would have happened. The millions would have been saved. Rashi alludes to that. She puts it all together in a seamless way. Rashi alludes to that. Rashi says when the great flood came, there only were nine good people in the world. Mishuselach died. He was the tenth to the minion. I always think of that because, you know, a rabbi comes early to shul and he hopes that there'll be nine others that will come after him. You know, what Patty Shaevsky wrote a play called The Tenth Man. We're always looking for the tenth man because the tenth man is the one that saves everybody. So that's what the Torah is teaching us. So you have to be able to see that in the Torah. You have to be able to see that in the text. And that speaks to us. That's not, that's not religion, you know what I mean? There are parts of the Torah that are religion, right? You're going to have wear tzitzis, you'll have a mezuzah on the door, you wear tfilm. No, that's religion. But the, the value system of Torah is not religion. The value system of the Torah that the Torah wants to teach us is the morality of the Torah, the morality of human life. And that is her strongest point. And that's the pattern in, uh, you know, I've taught her lessons uh, for a number of years. In fact, we taught it for two years consecutively here, Friday mornings in our class. There's a pattern to her. It's not, so when you look at it, you know, it's like five, six different topics that she's discussed. One has nothing to do with the other. But after a while, if you really study her, you see that she is coming from one direction. It's, it, it, all of a sudden, it makes a different sense. You see it from a different viewpoint. And that's the greatness of it. And if you see it from that point of view, so then you can quote Mendelssohn. And you can quote Benno Jacob, and you can quote all of these people. Doesn't uh, impinge upon the greatness of the Torah, or the impinge on the greatness of the God of the Torah. You don't have to be afraid of it, which is a remarkable thing. And so that's a whole genre of commentators which we have today. So, for instance, the Tziva Valojan. His commentary to Torah, the Malbim, his commentary to Torah, all of that, all of the Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's commentary to Torah, all of that is based on this same idea that the Torah has a value system and we have to be able to see it and discern it and learn from it and adopt it. So in this week's Parsha, for instance, she has a piece here. It says, You will do what is right and good in the eyes of God. 
What does that mean? We got 613 mitzvahs. So it should say, do all 613 mitzvahs, great. You get an A. And then it says, after the 613 mitzvahs, it says you should do what's good and right. So Rashi says, based on the Talmud, so Rashi says that means lifnim mishura sadin. You have to do more than what is asked of you. So the Talmud wants to give us an example of that. So the Talmud has the famous story in Bamitziah where a rabbi hired workers to move barrels of wine in his storeroom and the workers were negligent and they broke the barrels. So the rabbi that owned the broken barrels, he confiscated their clothing and he did not pay them because of the monetary loss that he sustained because of them. The workers, however, appealed to the rabbi of the town. They went to him and they said to him, we worked a whole day. Our wives and children are waiting home to eat. We have no money. He won't pay us. And he took our clothes. So the rabbi said, give him back the clothes. So he said to him, Dino Hoche, is that the law? The law is uh, they, they damaged me. I didn't damage them. The clothes are collateral. So the rabbi said, yeah, that's the law. Because it says you should do what's right and just. Caleb, but there are assuring, go on the right road. So they were encouraged. So they said, now, can we get paid? So he said, get paid yet? The rabbi said, yeah, pay them. They work the whole day, they don't have anything, pay them. So he said again, is that the law? He said, yeah, that's the law. You have to do what's good and right. So the Talmud in its inimitable fashion, and this is what she quotes, has framed the value for us that the law also has to fit into what is good and right. And if it doesn't, then that's not the law. Can't be that that's what the Torah wanted. Can't be that the Torah wanted that these workers should go home without their clothes and without their money. What kind of God is that? So therefore, Vasisa Atova Yoshua Bene Hashem that's the standard that you are held to. And you're held to do not just the law, you're held to do what is good and right. And so uh, now the uh, verse in the Torah takes on a completely different meaning to us. Now it becomes the value system and not just a pious statement because the law has to be right as well. So I, I want to conclude by just telling you one more item in this uh, vein. There was a famous uh, uh, rabbinic response of Reb Chaim Valozhiner. Reb Chaim Rabinowitz, the uh, disciple of the Gon of Vilna. And he had a woman that came before him. Her husband got lost on the road in Lithuania and they never found his body. No Gentile ever went to jail for, for mugging a Jew then. 
but she's stuck because there's no body. We don't know what happened. She can't remarry. She's a young woman. And so uh, she found a non-Jew who overheard a conversation in a tavern and they described uh, two uh, thugs described how they mugged this Jew and they described the Jew and it fitted the description of her husband and based on this very very flimsy evidence hearsay evidence from non-Jews and no body was ever found he nevertheless freed her he said she can remarry well one of the rules in life is there's always another rabbi so another rabbi wrote to him and he said how are you so cavalier with the law the law is that, uh, that she's not free what do you mean you freed her so Reb Chaim wrote him back this is what's published in the tshuva in the response he wrote him back and he said listen First of all, she's standing by me. She's not standing by you. That's one rule, right? The second thing is, he said, remarkable statement. Chishavti imkoni. So I had a discussion with God on this. This is such a difficult question that I had a discussion in heaven. What did they say? What would God say to this? And then I have a third thing. We have a value called the ways of the Torah are ways of pleasantness. So therefore, he tartiho, I said she's freed. And she is. So there you have the value system. She points, she points it out. She also quotes this. is a value system. Anything that doesn't fit into it, that can't be it. Well, if that's your interpretation of the Torah, so then we are on a level far different than what we originally thought we were on. And I think that's her greatest contribution. And that it came from a woman, came from a lonely woman, a woman that didn't have children, that pretty much had a desolate life, who was the teacher, again, of thousands, but who was the teacher of generations and whose influence lives on in the genre of commentary to the Torah which exists today. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. JM and the AM are by Wine's lectures available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Also, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWein.com. Um, tomorrow morning, Tisha B'Av, 7.30 a.m., myself and Rabbi Goldwasser are conducting a live Kinos service. I certainly hope you'll join us for that. And um, that'll happen tomorrow morning right here at JM in the AM. Friday is Erev Shabbos Nachamu, our Erev Shabbos show presented by Kedem, hosted by Mark Zamek, will we'll air at 12 midnight tomorrow night, excuse me, tomorrow night. So Friday morning at 12 midnight Eastern time, 
perfect for morning listeners in Israel. Twelve. It's a brand new Erev Shabbos show for Shabbos Nachamu. 12 midnight, 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern time. Again, all brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem and hosted by our very own Mark Zamek. Rabbi Beryl Wine, the final lecture for today is going to be about Golda Meir. It's uh, Women of Importance in Jewish History. That's the name of the series. This one on Golda Meir. And again, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine on Golda Meir at JM in the AM. Tonight is the uh, final lecture in this series on Jewish women of great influence. Um, Tonight uh, we're going to discuss a woman that doesn't quite fit into um, the other five that we discussed, um, but uh, who nevertheless was a woman of great influence and I think of uh, great contributions to the Jewish people as well. So I'm uh, speaking of Golda Meir, who was the, uh, I think, the fourth prime minister of the state of Israel, and uh, who has a very interesting life, but uh, not necessarily an easy one, and not necessarily a happy one. So uh, the story begins in Ukraine uh, when she's a very small child and practically her first memory as a child is a pogrom that took place in her village and her father uh, boarded up their house and she remembers him uh, knocking in the nails uh, to block up the door and the uh, pogromchiks uh, knocking on the door screaming, shouting and there were Jews that were killed that night and there were Jewish homes that were burned and now the pogroms worked on a system that there was no police so uh, you could do whatever you wanted and no one was ever punished for it. And in fact, in the uh, period, uh, the late 19th and early 20th century, in Tsarist Russia, the government encouraged pogroms. It was part of their program. The program was uh, the Jewish problem. What was the Jewish problem? What? Uh, how to get rid of the Jews in Russia. So the problem was supposed to be solved. One third extermination, which meant pogroms, the idea of scientific killing of millions of people, that did not happen until uh, the Bolsheviks and the Nazis. The Tsar was still primitive. So that was going to be pogroms, the one-third emigration, a third of the Jews people would leave on their own, which they did, mostly for the United States, some for then Palestine, and some for Western Europe, and one-third assimilation, by which desire meant conversion to the Russian Orthodox faith. 
that really didn't get off the ground because uh, Jews don't go for that so uh, her father uh, very early on decided that he and the family are going to leave Russia and come to the United States he comes to the United States and uh, naturally they land in New York uh, but he didn't find work so somehow he ended up in Milwaukee a lot of Jews I remember from uh, my youth from people uh, that told us stories a lot of people uh, you know uh, they had let's say six dollars so they went to the train station they said here's six dollars where can I go to so uh, for six dollars they said well you can go to Milwaukee so he didn't know Milwaukee from any other place in the world but Milwaukee had a decent Jewish community and uh, the family came and lived in Milwaukee where she went to public school in Milwaukee public school 4 on 4th street in Milwaukee which had been renamed Golda Meir Public School and it has a uh, uh, I would say a 99% Afro-American student body but uh, when she went there in the early part of the 20th century it was a Jewish neighborhood and uh, she's not a good student but she's a born leader it's two different things and uh, she already distinguishes herself in elementary school as uh, being uh, the outstanding girl in her class and eventually she puts her mind to studies and by the time she graduates 8th grade she was the valedictorian in her class and now she's going to go into high school and she's a teenager so you have to uh, put yourself into the uh, milieu of the times uh, many of the Jews uh, Russian Jews who immigrated to the United States uh, were socialists uh, were communists were anarchists because uh, the opposition to the Tsar drove them to that and uh, these uh, ideas were then uh, the most progressive the most promising uh, the most attractive ideas on the the marketplace and uh, because of that the Zionist movement Herzl creates it in 1897 uh, the Zionist movement from the beginning is split into many different factions Uh, not just religion splits it though that was certainly one of the things but it's split into its world view we're going to build a national homeland for the Jewish people what type of national homeland are we going to build now Herzl thought they're going to build Vienna they're going to build Austria 
uh, Rothschild uh, thought that uh, when he uh, would support the, the building of colonies that they were going to build France everybody comes with their preconceived notion and with their experience with their baggage of experience so uh, a great section of the Zionist movement and they later called themselves the general Zionists they uh, were capitalists private enterprise uh, they were going to build it in the image of the Western European countries. However, a sizable amount of Zionists said, uh, we are not just going to build Palestine, we're going to build the perfect country in the world. And the perfect country meant socialism, Marxism, communism, it, it took on the aura of all of those ideals that ruled the early part of the 20th century. And it said, we're going to build the workers' paradise in the land of Israel. So we're going to build the workers' paradise in the land of Israel. And this was called basically the Poaletzion the workers of Zion who themselves were split into a number of different factions the left was never one homogeneous group but they were going to develop the country according to their ideas one of their ideas was the kibbutz a communal uh, community where uh, nobody owns anything and everybody owns everything and the work would be assigned and uh, there wouldn't be rich or poor there'd be no discrimination and you'd be taken care of from the cradle to the grave but it takes an enormous amount of idealism to live on a kibbutz they're very uh, Relatively speaking, few real kibbutzim left today in the land of Israel because uh, the original idealistic drive uh, does not exist anymore and because the experiences with the left have not always been sanguine. But in the beginning of the 20th century, they were the pioneers that laid the infrastructure for the country. They glorified agricultural work. They glorified manual labor. All of this was part of this ethos of uh, the, uh, the the perfect society. So uh, you couldn't live off of your investments because that's not work. That's not fair. So you have to work off the labor of your hands. And uh, they were uh, uh, interested in establishing labor unions, the rights of the working person, uh, wages that were fair, 
Uh, not that the bosses should exploit them. Uh, you have to remember, in the beginning of the 20th century, factory conditions were terrible. And the workers were terribly exploited. It's uh, not till uh, really uh, the uh, time of the Second World War and the aftermath that the situation began to change. Then it changed radically that the unions ran it. So now that there's a reaction to that. Now the labor Zionists had youth movements throughout the world. And the purpose of the youth movement was uh, naturally to indoctrinate the Jewish youth with the uh, idea of building a Jewish homeland in Palestine, but also to indoctrinate them with the idea of socialism, of the left, uh, of kibbutz, and that that would be the perfect system. In the United States, uh, the organization was called Habonim, the builders. She's uh, 14, 15 years old. She's attending public high school in Milwaukee. And she joins the Habonim group. Now, she did not come from an observant family. She came from a Jewish family that had traditions, but it was not observant. And in fact, her father was uh, a socialist, a leftist. So that's the milieu that she grows up in. And she's single-minded. She is going to go to Palestine. She's going to join the kibbutz. She's going to work all of her life. She's the true believer. Idealistic to a fault. She herself writes that she's not a very attractive woman. Uh, only, only women write like that. Men have never met a woman that's not attractive. And uh, she says that was a great advantage to her. Because since uh, she did not have the social graces that made her popular with boys, she didn't have the looks... So she said she had time to study and to read and to develop her uh, view of herself. And uh, she uh, is determined to go to the land of Israel. First World War intervenes. Nobody's going to the land of Israel in the First World War. After the First World War, there is the promise of the Balfour Declaration that somehow uh, England will help, uh, Great Britain will help uh, create a Jewish homeland in the land of Israel, which was a great impetus to the Zionist movement. And uh, she is determined to make uh, what we call today Aliyah, and to go to the land of Israel and join the kibbutz. In the meantime, she meets a man who does find her attractive, by the name of Meyerson. Meyerson is a sign painter. But he uh, he's a uh, person of uh, great taste and refinement, uh, classical music. He's an expert in music. He, she writes he had the only phonograph in the neighborhood. And what made him especially attractive is that the phonograph 
was not the old type, you remember, with the horn and the dog listening, but it was a, you know, it was already a modern phonograph with records. And uh, they, uh, they marry, but she uh, insists that the marriage is conditional upon their going to the land of Israel and living in a kibbutz. So in, I think, 1921, they show up in Israel and they want to join Kibbutz Merchavia, which was a famous kibbutz, it no longer exists. But it was a famous kibbutz in the Galilee. Ben-Gurion was in that kibbutz. It was a, uh, it was, let's say it's the kibbutz everybody started out in. And originally they are refused membership. You know, the kibbutz has to vote you in. And uh, so there was a prejudice against Americans. And they felt that uh, all the Americans were uh, too influenced by capitalism to be a real kibbutznik. So they were rejected. They have nowhere to be. She, however, doesn't give up which is one of her traits is that she is rock solid in what she wants and uh, never knows how to take no for an answer so her husband says let's go back to Milwaukee he's not enamored of the country and he's not especially looking forward to be a gibbutznik but she forces him and they apply again. And this time they are accepted because he has a phonograph. <laughs> and uh, we all know that uh, classical music uh, can move mountains. And so now they're members of the kibbutz. They're on probation, but they're living in the kibbutz in Merchavia. And uh, she uh, is assigned to the kitchen. And he is uh, supposed to uh, learn how to be a farmer and plow, etc. That's not him. It is not him to any extent. He cannot adjust to it. Not only that, he can't adjust to the kibbutz way of life, where a committee decides everything as to what you're going to do, including when and how many babies you're going to have. And the babies are naturally raised by the kibbutz, not by the parents. He is terribly unhappy. Well, we all know that in a marriage, if one of the spouses is unhappy, the other one is also unhappy. And uh, because of that, uh, uh, he wants to leave the kibbutz. But he tells her that he's willing to live in the land of Israel but they should move to a city to Tel Aviv, to Jerusalem to a city to what he is accustomed meanwhile since she is such a force in the kibbutz from the kitchen she's a force she organized the women she got better conditions for them she changed the menu you know she's one of these ladies that you know that takes over so eventually the kibbutz puts her on the committee that runs the kibbutz 
and eventually uh, the kibbutz wants to send her to be their delegate to the Histadrut labor union which Ben Gurion is then forming which will eventually be uh, uh, certainly uh, the government in waiting because it was the Mapai, uh, the the left, the Polizion, those workers that were that eventually ran the Yishuv and were the forces that created the state of Israel a long time later. So she's way up, and he's a, he's he's nowhere, which is also not a good situation. And they move to Jerusalem. They live here in our neighborhood. And she has two children, a boy and a girl. But uh, the uh, Ben-Gurion notices her. And he notices her as a force. And so she's co-opted into the party, into the Mapai. And uh, she spends most of her life working for the party, for the government, for the state. Uh, very little time to the family, which she herself admits and regrets. And she says, only in my later years did I try to make it up to my grandchildren. In any event, uh, the... Uh, Zionist movement develops here in the country and uh, the country builds itself and uh, she is a uh, leading uh, uh, candidate for high positions with the Histadrut and eventually with the Jewish agency which was the shadow government of the Jews for the state of, before the state of Israel the uh, terrible events of the uh, war uh, occur. Before the war she uh, is one of those who uh, knew Ord Wingate, the British captain who helped train the Haganah and uh, she's aware of that England is not going to keep its word. Uh, She uh, was very anti-British. Uh, whereas, uh, for instance, Weizmann and the other ones still had faith in England. She had no faith. Also, the uh, ideas of uh, communism, of Bolshevism, had begun to wane in the country. And therefore, she uh, sees herself as part of the great democratic socialist union of countries all over the world. And every year there, were, there was, I don't know if there still is, uh, there was a convention of the socialists, an international convention. And she was always the representative from the Zionist movement and then later from the state of Israel. We'll come back to that in a, in a few minutes, God willing. And uh, her marriage breaks up completely. They're going in two different directions. They never were divorced, but they were separated for most of their lives. And uh, uh, she 
she may have found other men who were attracted to her but none of that is known to us after the second world war uh, the Zionist movement is faced with a terrible decision whether or not to strive for an independent state or whether to cooperate with the British and retain the British mandate and be part of uh, colonial uh, because no one realized quite then that the British Empire was disappearing she is adamant that they have to declare a state Uh, many in the labor Zionist movement said we are not prepared to have a state we don't have the army Uh, we don't have the infrastructure it's a poor country Uh, we're surrounded by Arabs it's not going to happen and uh, this was a fateful decision Uh, the last uh, meeting of the executive committee uh, the vote was 6-4 to to create a state you know we think it was something that Everybody knew that we were going to do it. But she was the driving force. And that's when Ben-Gurion said about her his famous comment that she's the only man in my cabinet. Because she was the driving force. Not only that, Uh, Ben-Gurion entrusted her with diplomatic missions that he would entrust no one else with don't forget uh, Charette would be his foreign minister and then Levi Eshkol would be prime minister there would be a whole series of people Uh, she met with uh, King Abdullah of Transjordan in early uh, in, in 1946 and uh, she extracted a promise from him that uh, he would let the the Jews have a state and that uh, Jordan wouldn't interfere they saw that there would be a great benefit to it but that Jordan would take over Jerusalem and uh, the the non-Jewish part of the geography of the country in uh, after the uh, resolution of the United Nations on November 29th 1947 when the uh, United Nations partitioned Palestine and made room for a Jewish state so Ben-Gurion sent her again because Ben-Gurion knew that there was going to be a war be a war not only with the Arab militias in Palestine but the war with Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and Egypt Saudi Arabia so he sent her again to see Abdullah but Abdullah now said he's not willing to meet her he met before at the Jordan River now she's got to come to Amman which was a dangerous and difficult trip and she shows up and this time Abdullah is of a completely different nature first of all he says he's insulted that they sent a woman to negotiate with him which could be in the uh, 
in the mentality of the time, certainly in the Arab mentality of the time, that makes uh, it could be seen as an affront. And uh, she reminds him directly, she said, you know, a Bedouin never lies, keeps his word, and a king never lies, he keeps his word. And you are both a Bedouin and a king. So he says, uh, the most I can promise you is that uh, Jordan will take over all of Palestine and we will give the Jews protection and a certain amount of autonomy, but it will be under a Jordanian government. You know, uh, Abdullah would be assassinated two years later. So uh, the promise, uh, the proposal certainly uh, would not have been fulfilled. But when she brought the proposal back, there were members of the Jewish agency that were willing to accept it because they were convinced that they could not win the war. Uh, Yigal Yadin then was the head of the uh, what would be the Israel Defense Forces and so at a meeting of the Jewish agency Ben-Gurion asked him point blank what do you think our chances are so he said 50-50 to which Ben-Gurion said which 50 <laughs> but you have to re- I mean now it's you know we got the best air force we are, you know you have to realize that that was not the case at all and that it was and she was the driving force she lobbied everyone said it had to happen and uh, they needed money for a change where do you get money you have to buy arms nobody's willing to America was an embargo Britain was an embargo France nobody would sell arms the only country willing to sell arms was Czechoslovakia and uh, the Skoda Munition Works. And also in Czechoslovakia there were a whole slew of uh, German tanks, planes that you know, were left over from the Second World War that for money you could buy. So where do you get the money? So the, the first thought of every Israeli is America. So Ben-Gurion sends Golda Meir to America and he says, Golda, we need $25 million, which then today would be like $200 million, which is still a drop in the bucket today when it's all billions and trillions. So she comes to America and she she speaks, she goes all over, she organizes parlor meetings. She got the Jewish gangsters in America, the mob. It was Lansky and uh, Weinstein and a few others. They made a parlor meeting. Now, when you got invited to a parlor meeting by Lansky, you showed up. It's not like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy tonight. Or I gave already. And uh, everybody came with envelopes. That's why Lansky never understood why the state of Israel turned them back to the United States. Because he thought that in the culture of the mob, if you do a favor, then they owe you a favor. So he could not imagine that they were going to give them back. But she organized it. 
and she spoke so she raised 50 million dollars instead of 25 million I remember she was in Chicago at the Chicago Stadium and the uh, all of us from the yeshiva went even the uh, rabbeim in the yeshiva most of whom were certainly not Zionists but we all went because this was uh, this was life or death for us and uh, I remember at the uh, the opening ceremony I mean the opening of the program they raised the Israeli flag to the roof of the stadium and the entire audience I'm saying 20,000 people in the stadium was the old Chicago Stadium wept with a sea of tears because the whole exile poured out I thought to myself then I was uh, quite young but uh, I was a genius at an early age so uh, I thought to myself then they should stop the program that's it there's nothing more you know that's the highlight everybody understands everybody's going to give money goodbye but she spoke and she was, spoke perfect English because she was from Milwaukee and uh, she uh, spoke American English and uh, she comes back with 50 million dollars they take the 50 million dollars to Czechoslovakia all of a sudden Israel has Messerschmitt airplanes and it has uh, German tanks and it has old Sherman tanks it has heavy mortars it has machine guns and it turns the tide because the Arabs were equipped by England especially the Jordanian Legion so uh, that, in Ben-Gurion's eyes she was uh, she was it and so when he for- forms his first cabinet he makes her a minister and she was minister of labor for many years and minister of development she undertook uh, the settlement of the refugees that came but the first uh, wave of refugees were survivors of the Shoah so they they had to be settled one way now again you have to remember the country had nothing it was called a tsena nobody had what to eat I remember that uh, in the United States there was a program called CARE in which you uh, bought a certificate in the United States and you mailed the certificate to your relative in Israel and there was a warehouse here full of food that was owned by CARE and they gave the certificate and got the food I remember that uh, my father was always sending uh, certificates to our relatives here so that they simply had food to eat and then after a while it grew into uh, Philco there was a company Philco that made refrigerators made radios made refrigerators so uh, Philco also if you bought a certificate in the United States they would give a Philco refrigerator here 
Because I remember uh, we, my father saved up money and he sent for his mother and his sister here a refrigerator. And my aunt told me that the whole neighborhood used the refrigerator. It was one refrigerator. So that, she has to uh, settle the refugees on, uh, on that shoestring. And then came the second wave, which were the Jews that were expelled from the Arab countries. And the great wave of Sephardic immigration. Now they came with a completely different culture. They were not socialists. Uh, it was a very, very difficult absorption that we are still dealing with. And the Ashkenazim were very prejudiced. And to a great extent, we see that they still are. And uh, the, uh, she was terribly prejudiced. She had a famous quote that the Svartim turned against her. She said, they're not nice people, which is not nice to say. And she's the one that's supposed to resettle them and to place them in, uh, to integrate them in society. It was a very, very difficult time, terribly difficult. She also, and Ben-Gurion picks her for these things, she's the first uh, diplomatic representative of the State of Israel to the Soviet Union. So she comes to Moscow, and she comes, uh, Yom Kippur, to the main synagogue in Moscow, for Yom Kippur davening, 50,000 Jews stand outside the synagogue to see her. There are marvelous photographs of it. That is what turned Stalin against it completely. He said the Jews are not reliable, they're not loyal, you see what I So her success was really the failure. And they underestimated Stalin's hatred of the Jews and of the state of Israel. Now Stalin was very, Stalin recognized the state of Israel and he helped it come into being with his votes in the UN. But uh, Stalin miscalculated. He thought that the uh, Jews in the state of Israel were all if not uh, communists, but at least they were left-wing socialists, they would all go into the Soviet camp in the Cold War. And when that didn't happen, when Ben-Gurion chose to align Israel with the West, with the United States, and not with the Soviet Union, so then the uh, rift with the Soviet Union became more accentuated. And eventually... uh, The Soviet Union became the great enemy of the state of Israel, arming its enemies and uh, distributing propaganda, which exists still today. All the things about the state of Israel that you read, all the negative things were first said by the Soviet Union and were popularized by it. What happens now is that Israel is forced to fight another war in 1956. She uh, remains in the government. And uh, in the 1960s, Levi Eshkol becomes 
the uh, Prime Minister. Ashko was an old, hardened socialist who only spoke Yiddish. <laughs> and he, uh, he drafts her to be the head of the Mapai Party, the Labour Party, which is the backbone of the government. There was a danger that the party was going to split into all sorts of factions. So she's drafted, and again, she does a remarkable job. And in the next elections, they win big. You have to realize there was one time that they got 56 mandates. Within five mandates of having an absolute majority in the Knesset. And today, if you get 25, 30, you're the power. That's how fragmented it's become. And uh, so she, uh, she's there during the 67 war. Ben-Gurion said, after the 67 war, that all the territory captured should be given back, unconditionally. Eshkol said together with Moshe Dayan we're ready to give it all back but we want we want them to ask us for it we want to get terms we don't want to go to war again Uh, however the Arabs uh, decided on their policy of three no's no negotiation no peace no recognition, which remained there in policy uh, to a certain extent for a long time. There are cracks in the, in the wall, but there are those that still hold to, to that. And because of that, therefore, uh, uh, she also said, well, that if they don't want it back, then we'll, we'll settle it, we'll do what we can. And it was the labor government that started all of the settlements. It was not Begin, and it was not Sharon, and it was not the right-wing parties, but it was rather the labor government that uh, began the settlements uh, throughout the West Bank simply because of the fact that there was a vacuum and they wanted to fill the vacuum with people. They didn't want it to remain deserted. She uh, retires. She says in 1966 she's diagnosed with lymphoma. Then it was uh, not as treatable as it is today. And uh, she retires. She will live another 14 years. But... uh, she thinks her political career is done. She wants to be with her grandchildren. She and uh, she takes the bus here in Jerusalem and goes to the shuk. And she's just uh, and everybody thinks of her as you know, Golda is the Yiddish Bobe, right? She had changed her name from Meyerson to Meir when uh, all of the cabinet ministers had to Hebraicize their names. 
Levi Eshkol dies suddenly of a heart attack. And the uh, infighting in the Labour Party threatens to destroy not only the party, but to destroy the state of Israel. And therefore, she becomes the compromise candidate. Everybody is in favor of Golda. And she takes over as the head of the prime minister of the state of Israel. Uh, A woman prime minister, which then was not common, but uh, she had the respect of everyone. And she ran a very tight ship. Her foreign minister was Abi Ibn, and her defense minister was Moshe Dayan. This is after the 67 war. There's euphoria in the state of Israel. So first there is the war of attrition on the Suez Canal for two years. Uh, The Egyptians shell, the, the Israeli Air Force retaliates back and forth over 5,000 Egyptian soldiers are killed but there's every day there's a picture of an Israeli soldier that also was killed and uh, she brokers uh, a, uh, an agreement with Nixon she travels to the United States she meets President Nixon her famous remark to Pre- Nixon was very awkward in social events doesn't know what to do with it, what to say. So he blurted out to her, uh, he said, uh, well, we have a lot in common, Madam Prime Minister. Both of us have Jewish foreign ministers because uh, Nixon had Kissinger and she had Abba Eben. And she coolly replied, but mine speaks English better. <laughs> They broker an armistice with Nasser, and the uh, war of attrition ends. But the Soviet Union rearms all the Arab states after its terrible defeat in 1967. And in 1973, uh, Israel is aware that there's going to be a war here that Egypt and Syria and perhaps Jordan are going to attack once again now the 67 war was won because Israel preempted the war Israel attacked first destroyed all of the air forces well you can't win a tank battle if you don't control the skies 1973 the uh, Israeli intelligence tells her and everybody else listen they're going to attack and they knew the day they're going to attack attack on Yom Kippur so then the question arose shall we preempt them again but this time uh, the United States and France those countries that supplied Israel with arms said 
we will not support you or help you if you fire the first shot. So she takes the responsibility that she says we will absorb the first blow and then we will be able to counterattack and win. That was a miscalculation. In the first uh, few days of the Yom Kippur War, uh, Diane said to her, the third temple is falling. But she never lost her nerve. By the way, she was a chain smoker. She never saw her without a cigarette. And uh, she said, no, we're going to win. And uh, the Israeli army turned it around, uh, defeated Syria, defeated Egypt. But uh, a tremendous cost. There were, I think, 20, over 2,600 soldiers killed. 10,000 wounded uh, and not only that the, the mood of the country was destroyed was shaken I remember I came here in a few months after the war and uh, I was amazed by uh, how, how the country had changed and there was a commission to study the war and justly or unjustly Diane got the blame, she got the blame, etc. And they resigned, she resigned. So that at the end, uh, at the end it wasn't disgrace, but at the end it was not triumph either. And Rabin succeeded her. And she retired to a private life again, and then uh, passed away. Uh, she was over 80 years old. But she had devoted her entire life to building the country. And uh, she was steadfast when others were weak. And she was wise when others were foolish. But uh, she was human. She had a difficult life. She had made mistakes. So, uh, as usual, it's a mixed bag. But I think, generally speaking, the Jewish people remember her for good remember her positively as really one of the driving forces that helped create the state of Israel and maintain it and that therefore uh, she is more than entitled uh, to uh, the thanks and the memory of the Jewish people for what she contributed and for the life that she led this jam in the AM with the uh, lecture about Golda Meir Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Uh, tomorrow is Tisha B'Av at 7.30 a.m. We'll have our live kino service, myself and Rabbi Goldwasser. Uh, the Isaiah Wall virtual get-together, usually we dive in at the Isaiah Wall, but now it's a virtual presentation. Uh, happens starting at 1.45 p.m. tomorrow. If you want the Zoom ma- meeting ID, you can email me, um, nachum at com, or you can speak with Glenn Richter at 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. The Arab Shabbos Show with Mark Zamek, presented by the amazing people at Kedem. That'll air tomorrow night at 12 midnight Eastern time, which is 7 a.m., by the way, Friday morning if you're in Israel. 
12 midnight, again at 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern time, all brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem, hosted by Mark Zamek, a brand-new show for Shabbos Nachamu. And for those of you who listen on 24-6, it, it should be uploaded by the time Tisha B'Av ends. By the time Tisha B'Av ends, it'll be up there at 24-6. You'll have that for yourself um, for Erev Shabbos Nachamu. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that wraps up a Wednesday Erev Tisha B'Av here at JM in the AM. Tomorrow morning again, Rabbi Goldwasser and I will conduct Kinnis service starting at 7.30. If you're not heading to shul, join us for that. And um, and there you have it. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Prepare well for the Tanis, for the fast. Until tomorrow, it's Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.